0: you're listening to an ODI
1: live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
0: 4th International Chronic Poverty Report on Growth. So this links SDG 8 and SDG 1, uh, the eradication of poverty in all its forms, and especially Target 1, the eradication of extreme poverty. The report is online, just went online today, so please do download it. Um, And I think those of you who signed up for the session should have received them there. And there's a summary uh, on your which um, gives some of the leading points uh, of the report. Um, Just an observation on the HLTF session on SDG 8 last week. Uh, There wasn't much discussion there about the link between growth and poverty. I think it's easy to assume that uh, that link is there and it's going to work. But the growth-poverty reduction nexus cannot be taken for granted can be periods of growth without poverty reduction or even emit rising growth for periods of time. I think we'll become a brief word about CPAM, the chronic poverty advisory network. We're a network of researchers, policymakers, practitioners, including 17 people in 17 developing countries and hosted at ODI in London. And we work on the poverty dynamics underlying the trends of poverty reduction. So um, people escaping poverty, falling into poverty, <clears throat> staying in poverty over a long period of time. We try to understand these and explain them. And of course what you need to do to eradicate poverty is to uh, tackle chronic poverty, stop impoverishment and sustain people's escapes out of poverty. That's what we call our poverty tripod. Mm-hmm. We do quantitative as well as qualitative analysis. We draw out the policy implications and we try to engage with policymakers, as in today's session. So today we have a great chair, Margaret Kakandi, a great keynote speaker, Professor Bambang from Indonesia, and a group of excellent speakers to address these issues. Um, The order is as on the agenda that you have. Uh, I'm not going to give detailed introductions to individuals because you have the profiles uh, on the second page. But just to say that we're very honored particularly to have Professor Bambang uh, Brojo Negro from uh, uh, Indonesia, the Minister of National Development Planning, uh, previously Minister of Finance. He has a very long and distinguished uh, career, and he's going to be our keynote speaker uh, in a few moments. Um, Margaret, can I hand over to you? Thank you.
2: So, Mr. Minister, vampire, colleagues, panelists, and members, good morning. Good, morning. good morning. So, the Minister will be leaving us soon, so we want to actually. May I use his presence here. <coughs> so I'll be calling to
1: <coughs>
2: So we have two presentations first from Dr. Shepard. I'll give him ten minutes to summarize for us the key findings. Then I'll call upon the Prime Minister from Jakarta to also make his presentation. Then we shall pause at the time because he'll be leaving. So we would like people to ask questions if any. Because I think we need to okay share his experience. So, Professor
0: Schiffer. Thank you very much. Um, so the, I'll just very briefly um, look at some of the key research findings uh, that the Chronic Poverty Report is based on, and then go on to the policy implications uh, of those findings. Um, so the evidence base, if you look at figures two and three in the, um, in the briefing note that's on your table, uh, the evidence base is a, a stream of country studies uh, looking at poverty dynamics and trying to draw out the policy implications. And beyond those which are mentioned uh, in those figures, uh, we're currently working again in Rwanda, we're about to start in Zambia, and later this year in Zimbabwe, and plans for other countries in future. We would hope also to work in Indonesia at some point. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the main uh, issue coming out of the report is about the distinction between growth from above and growth from below. And I just want to explain those terms very briefly at the beginning. So growth from above is tends to be large scale, formal investments. Uh, growth from below tends to be small scale, often household level, often informal investments um, to, to contribute to the economy, if you like. So the major finding of the report, of the research on which the report is based, is that escapes and sustained escapes from poverty typically rely on growth from below, even where growth from above is delivering jobs through labor-intensive manufacturing. And two of the countries that we've worked in are Bangladesh and Cambodia, where the garments industries employ migrant women from poor and near-poor households with little education. So growth from below relies on financial inclusion, migration to towns for work and enterprise development, asset development in farm and fish and livestock and non-farm occupations, and household level diversification. And there's an example of John, which I would just like to find. So you can see here that um, John is from Kenya. He started off uh, at a very modest level of existence. Uh, He dropped out of school, his father died when he was a a teenager, he dropped out of school due to the inability of his family to afford school fees. He then migrated a little bit later uh, to Nairobi and worked in a bakery, he got promoted at the bakery, he was obviously a, a hard worker. The bakery went bankrupt so he, uh, he went home again, and then he worked as a machine operator in the coffee business, uh, locally. Later on he got married, he migrated back to Nairobi, he had a girlfriend in Nairobi. Uh, but later on still he returned home and left his girlfriend, um, and we, we found him with his children in private school, with a, with, he bought land, he had a business. I think this illustrates quite nicely um, how people can, <laughs> out of poverty, some of the factors involved, economic factors in moving out of poverty, but also how they can, it's, it's a step thing. It doesn't happen in a smooth line. There are shocks along the way, and you have to be able to withstand those shocks. What we found, uh, I mean, I, yeah, what we found uh, in the research is that there are critical promotive factors, including gender relationships. So, for example, if you have collaborative, uh, a collaborative marriage, collaborative spousal relationships, Gender equality policy measures. I mean, the worry about the example of John here is that he leaves his girlfriend, and we don't hear the story about what happens to his girlfriend. It may well be that his girlfriend has children, and she she actually falls back in poverty once he's left her. So there's there's quite a, a kind of significant potential downside there. Um, but, uh, yeah, education is, is very, very important uh, in terms of... Um, getting both getting people out of poverty also stopping people falling back in Um, public health programs Uh, one of the countries we've done quite a bit of work in is rwanda where which has a unique health insurance program uh, covers more than 80 percent of the population the bottom part of the population is uh, membership is subsidized i think indonesia has developed a similar sort of scheme it'll be interesting to hear about that quality of disaster risk management and so on and so forth now, if you look at um, Table 1 on page 8 in the, um, in the briefing note, it seems we've tried to measure how well government policies uh, do in terms of promoting this sort of uh, balanced growth, and particularly growth from below. And we found quite a variety. Most governments tend to support growth from above and even can sometimes put obstacles in the way of uh, growth from below. Um, as much as promoting it. When we looked at donors, we, were, uh, we also found considerable variety. Some of the donors do support growth from below, particularly in agriculture, um, but others are mostly also supporting growth from above. We are not saying that growth below, from below should be promoted at the expense of growth from above. Both are necessary. What we need is a balance. And I think what we have at the moment is an imbalance and perhaps we need to think about ways and means of correcting that, if that uh, imbalance. You need that combination. And ideally, uh, growth from above should stimulate growth from below. Um, so, remove obstacles, the policy implications. Remove obstacles to both. Develop an enabling, an enabling environment for economic freedom. A big lesson from the success stories in translating growth into poverty reduction in East Asia and Southeast Asia uh, is that um, people need to be free to sell their goods into the markets where they want to sell their goods, to produce the goods that they want to produce. So, economic freedom is an important part of the story. Decent institutional functioning, frontline services. Which um, you know, don't I mean this is on the, on the level of taking away the obstacles, police who do not harass or extort money uh, from small enterprises. perhaps also avoiding taxes and charges which prevent people from saving and investing. We found quite frequently that households take off. They really uh, invest, save and invest when their children no longer go to school, when their children have grown up, because the, the cost of school fees, the cost of keeping kids in school can really hold families back. Um, We thought that it was useful from this point of view to try and poverty-proof economic policies, uh, meaning assess and anticipate the direct and indirect impacts on poor and near-poor people. For example, with taxation, uh, avoid over-rapid extension of tax brackets into the informal economy. Uh, Or regulation of the informal sector or smallholder agriculture. Sort of look at the implications uh, of this before you you do it. If you're charging for services, and many governments promote the idea of self-reliance, that people should actually pay for what they take from the state. At least to some extent they should contribute. But if you have to contribute over five or six different items, this may bust your budget and it may prevent you from saving and investing. So then the direct support to promote growth from below and try and improve that balance, recognition and counting the small informal firms, women's economic empowerment, make sure financial services are available, especially for savings and modest credit. And here we think about having a ladder from the very bottom of the financial inclusion process uh, further up, so from the self-help groups uh, and the um, village savings and, and loans associations up to the next level of cooperative uh, cooperative um, credit cooperatives and, and microfinance institutions and creating some links <coughs> between these uh, organizations. Improving smallholder agricultural productivity is something which of course many people have, many governments and uh, agencies have been trying to do for a very long time, but this remains absolutely critical including for the tiny farms. Quite often we find a process of polarization going on where more commercial smallholder farmers are able to invest uh, but leaving behind tiny farms who don't get the services. But these tiny farms, we have found in our research, can be very important in terms of helping people out of poverty and getting people onto the ladder. Yeah, business development services to promote both the rural non-farm economy which tends to be rather neglected and also the urban informal sector which can be rather oppressed sometimes by regulation combined with um, things like insurance and police protection against theft of assets. Theft of assets was something, business assets and farm assets were something that we found came up frequently in the research uh, as something which impoverished people or prevented them from making further progress. I've got a, a little example here of the importance of asset development. Uh, this is from Rwanda. In Leah's case, she raised a bull calf and sold it for a cow and then sold that cow to buy land. So this is the detail. Just after marriage, Leah obtained a rented cow from a neighbour. This is a tradition in Rwanda that you rent cows to your neighbours or your relatives. And the owner gave them the offspring, a bull. The bull was sold at 120,000 Rwandan francs and she added 20,000 Rwandan francs from savings. I bought a cow at 140,000 Rwandan francs. Eventually, in a place where they had constructed a house, another piece of land was on sale. They sold the cow at 180,000 francs and bought the land. The <coughs> land had a coffee plantation, but they cut the coffee and planted banana and other crops. This is a little vignette of uh, a household making progress. Rwanda has a one-cow policy where some poor families are granted a cow, building on this tradition of cow lending. And it's a very good policy in terms of helping people get out of policy, it's absolutely brilliant. So direct supports also to growth from above, industrial policy, identifying comparative and competitive advantage and promoting particular sectors or firms with productivity enhancing conditions. Facilitating on the other side, sort of looking at the labor force, facilitating and taking the sting Uh, out of migrating for work. For example, in Cambodia, we found the government was very focused on supporting international migrants, people who had gone to Thailand uh, or other countries, but they were not so focused on internal migrants. So there were some very good policies and programs on the international side, which needed to be adapted to support internal migrants. Most very poor people migrate internally, or at most to a neighboring country. Um, but internal migration is something that gets quite, um, quite neglected. And then to avoid escapes being temporary as opposed to sustained, a complementary set of insurance measures to prevent impoverishment. And in, if you look at figures one and two, you can see that the impoverishment bars and the impoverishment ratios can be quite high, unnecessarily high, I think. So a focus, you need a focus on the near poor as well as the poor people who might be impoverished, people who are just making it out of poverty. Avoid um, excessive credit in a chaotic credit market with irresponsible lenders. We often find this phrase of credit that can kill. So credit where uh, if people's assets get seized because they've taken loans which they can't repay, if they get into a debt spiral, they take one loan to pay another loan. These are situations which can be avoided, I think. The public expenditure uh, implications of the report are pretty significant, um, and that's maybe something that we can discuss during the discussion period. Thank you very much.
2: So thank you, Professor. And we give him a hand. <laughs> so, at this juncture, I would like to call upon Professor Bamba to give us his experience from Indonesia.
3: Uh, Very good morning, everybody. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for the invitation uh, to be a keynote speaker at this event. So uh, let me share directly with you about the poverty reduction in Indonesia and of course the relation with our inclusive development effort. We had the latest data released, in in fact just today. Uh, that our poverty rate uh, declining again from 9.66% poverty rate in September 2018 now becomes 9.41% in March 2019. Of course, when you are talking about the 9.41%, it is good for Indonesia because for the very first time in our history, at the beginning of 2018, we had poverty rate below 10%. And uh, we are trying to keep making uh, lower uh, with all of our efforts. However, with uh, despite the uh, the good uh, progress in terms of the poverty rate itself, 9.41%, we still had in absolute amount 25 million people still living under poverty line. If you are talking about 25 million, you are not talking about the. Uh, the size of a city. I think 25 million will be equivalent to the total population of Australia, for example. So you can imagine the difficulty of our government to manage poverty because we have to deal probably with the, uh, the big size of population scattered all over Indonesia. Of course, most of them will be in Java because Java has the most population. But still, we have to pay attention to everybody lives in different parts of Indonesia, which is the largest archipelagic country in the world. Aside from the poor people, we have to deal with the so-called, uh, I think in uh, d- definition in this forum, is called the uh, temporary, or, yeah, temporary uh, escape, temporary escape. We call it vulnerable people vulnerable uh, uh, people who can be poor people at any time. Why? Because they have low education. Our elementary school uh, around, uh, you know, I mean, if you're talking about the highest education at household elementary (laughs) 37.8%, not attending school 25%, and high school only 12%. So low education is one issue. The other is the elderly. 21% of the household considered the elderly, they are in the vulnerable group. They have poor housing facilities. 43% do not have access to sanitation, and 37% do not have access to drinking water. 54% of them living in rural area. And why rural area? Because rural area usually depends on agriculture, and agriculture, as you know, is very vulnerable to the climate issues. If you are in, let's say, now we have... A potentially high, uh, not high, long dry season, that will become very risky for people who live in rural areas, especially the farmers, and also uh, lack of access to finance. So we have to deal with both the poverty, including the chronic poverty or extreme poverty, as well as the the temporary uh, escape or these vulnerable people. So. The part of the vulnerable people that we have to really take into uh, attention or consideration is what we call the aspiring middle income. So they are not in the poverty level yet, I mean they are already out of the poverty level but they are not really in the middle class. So they are somewhere in between. They are called aspiring middle class. They want to be middle class but they are not yet there. this is the issue because uh, this aspiring middle class usually affects the inequality in uh, in the in the region, as of course in our country. Especially the ones who live in rural area. Again, in rural area, Indonesia, although we we are already urbanized country, more than 50% of our population now live in urban area, but still we have significant uh, amount of population living in rural area depends on agriculture and somehow their productivity is very low, their wage is very low, and they are the biggest part of the poverty. So that's why when whenever we are talking about poverty alleviation, we have to deal with this aspiring middle class at one side and the lowest income people on the other side, especially in rural area. And one of the issue uh, in Indonesia why the aspiring middle-income class is still quite high and poverty is still there, is the lower uh, level of participation of women labor force. In 2017, for example, 82% of men working or being part of the labor force, but women only 50%. So the issue in Indonesia is how to increase women participation in labor force. And somehow the data about 51% of women labor force participation has been segmented for quite some time, meaning that although we have done some effort to increase the participation rate, somehow the the rate is not yet uh, significantly uh, increasing or improving. Why? There are uh, issues with this layman, I mean, the relatively lower women's labor force participation rate. Of course, sometimes there are not uh, enough decent work opportunities for women. Or sometimes there is issue of equal employment opportunity. Although for the countries like Indonesia, we, we actually do not have the issue about employment opportunity. For example, in the cabinet, we are 34 cabinet members, eight of them are women. I think one of the highest maybe in, I don't know, in Asia or maybe in the world, but it means that equal employment opportunity is not there. We already had one uh, women president in the past and of course in many aspects of the professional, there are also women participation. But the problem not at the top level, I would say, but the problem more on the middle and especially at the low level of job opportunities. And of course, we have to... Uh, promotion we have to do the promotion of increasing opportunity for women to do multiple roles so by that by doing that we hope that the labor force participation rate for women will be increasing women also work more I mean the reason why women not too much in the not so much in the labor force they are also working more in the informal sector meaning that they are They are trying to stay away from being part of the formal sector, maybe because of all the requirements in the job itself. But the problem is more on their participation in the informal sector. You know, when you are in the informal sector, you are not well protected, protected in terms of social security, in terms of pension, and in terms of uh, uh, job safety and others. So, again, Women is vulnerable although they can participate in the informal sector. And then in terms of their low, in their wage, their wage is still comparatively low uh, for the same jobs and position compared to men. I think this is the issue not exclusive for Indonesia but uh, in many other uh, parts of the world and also it has been an international issue. And then uh, to continue with this, (coughs) The reason why we have to uh, reduce the poverty is because we need more productive labor force. To be part of the more productive labor force, you need to promote more economic opportunities, more business opportunity, especially for the poor and vulnerable, for the aspiring middle class. So again, if you are dealing with the aspiring middle class of this temporary uh, escape, you need to provide more economic opportunity. However, there are there are big challenges why we cannot just promote uh, the idea uh, in the simplest way. Number one, low quality of production equipment and technology access, especially at the rural area, especially at the agriculture. So in agriculture, you are always in the position, I mean as agriculture in developing countries, I'm not talking about agriculture in developed countries. Agriculture in developing countries is, uh, reflected by low productivity because we do not use enough agriculture equipment, uh, machinery, and ha- latest technology, so we still depend on the traditional approach of doing agriculture. Secondly, uh, there are still uh, traditional or intuitive approach. I mean, they are not yet in the level of advancement, so for example, Indonesia, uh around almost 20% of our villages still categorized as underdeveloped villages, meaning that they have low education and low productivity. Third, lack of access to basic infrastructure. It could be uh, connectivity, street transportation, and other inadequate infrastructure uh, facility. Fourth, limited market coverage, meaning that you can produce your own uh, crops, but you have problem when you want to sell your crops especially to the nearest uh, traditional markets. Why? Because the road infrastructure is not available or there are no people who like to buy your product at a relatively uh, decent price. And last but not least, lack of alternative funding schemes. Again, relatively small villages has access to alternative financing for promoting uh, economic activities. At the national level, we are trying to focus not only on poverty alleviation. I believe poverty alleviation and reducing inequality coming in one package. So we are trying to create the so-called inclusive economic development index. There are three pillars. Pillar number one is economic growth. Economic growth is still very much important. You cannot have uh, poverty reduction at the, at the good rate, I mean at the declining rate if you don't have economic growth. And then second pillar is income, in, income equality and poverty reduction. And pillar number three is improving access and opportunity. So we are trying to make or to compare one area to the other in Indonesia by using this Uh, inclusive, uh, I mean, national inclusive development index. And then, uh, using that uh, uh, index, we are trying to define our main strategies to reduce poverty, vulnerability, and to reduce inequality. In our five years plan, 2015-2019, that will end this year, we have three main strategies. First, comprehensive social protection system like social security, social assistance, which is now very big in Indonesia. And we learn from uh, success from other countries. For example, now we have the conditional cash transfer. Why we had conditional cash transfer? Because we learn from Brazil. We learn from Bolsa Familia, for example, how Bolsa Familia can reduce the inequality in Brazil. So we adopt that kind of approach in our conditional cash transfer. We have the universal health coverage, (laughs) Maybe this is not an uh, interesting issue for anybody who doesn't like to spend much on their budget. But in our case, in order to <laughs> reduce distract the, drastically the health—I mean the the, uh, the health issues—we need to have this kind of universal health coverage, and we have also the the special assistance or special support from government for education and also for. Uh, Buying staple foods. So we have now the kind of food stamps to buy uh, staple foods especially for our staple food like rice, eggs and also we are trying to expand into other type of protein. So we are trying to help people that uh, still under uh, the nutrition issue. The second uh, strategy would be basic services development, like basic infrastructure and public services uh, improvement. And basic infrastructure, we are talking about drinking water and sanitation. We have to admit in Indonesia we are still uh, behind in those areas. In sanitation, for example, we still have open open defecation, I think second or the third largest in the world. So it's not something to be proud of, and we need to improve this by uh, improving the infrastructure for the sanitation as well as the water, clean water. And the third, sustainable livelihoods for the poor and vulnerable through livelihood development and infrastructure support for economic development. And then our target poverty rate by the end of this year, 2019, will be between 85 to 9.5%. So now we are already below 9.5% and I hope by the end of this year, it could be closer to 9%. And the Gini ratio, which is the inequality, uh, the latest number on sept- September 2018, 0.384. So we hope that by 2019, it will be uh, around uh, 0.38. And, I, I just described to you about this so-called safety net program, social safety net, to protect families from uh, human capital loss, destitution. But they also need sustainable livelihoods and opportunities for better jobs. So how can they involve in real economic activities in order to improve their life? So we have to identify uh, how can they participate in the potential sector, how can uh, market players uh, support these poor and the vulnerable, and at the end of the day whether what they are doing will have some growth potential. So this is the further improvement on inclusive development. Number one, improving living standard and promoting better livelihood to the lowest economic growth. So we still have chronic poverty, extreme poverty, and they have to be taken care you know, with the, uh, with the specific action through, through increasing education and health services, improvement basic infrastructure for connectivity, local economic development, including financial access, and upholding the principle of equal employment. And then, as I mentioned, we need to strengthen the aspiring middle-income cl- uh, class, promoting them to be involved in the business activities, strengthening small and medium enterprises, enhancing labor expertise and skill certification, as well as expanding access to labor market opportunities. Last but not least, using the technology. Now is the era of technology. Mm -hmm. Extend the outreach uh, for public basic services and stimulate innovation and creative uh, ideas. Thank you very much, and I hope uh, the keynote can give you some uh, lesson learned about what we are facing in Indonesia. And again, uh, I forgot to mention, Indonesia is a very big country, 260 million largest archipelagic, meaning that Mm. dealing with poverty will be very tough, and especially you have to deal also with inequality. Not only inequality among the income class, but also inequality among regions. And these two will be basically interrelated. You can handle the... If you can handle the regional or uh, inter-regional disparity, basically you can also reduce the potential disparity uh, among income class. So again, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Professor, for your keynote address. Members I want to open the session before he leaves us for any questions. I'm sure he'll stick on your minds in terms of the experiences. The flow is open, you just say your name and, and the question. I didn't
4: the report, so... Yeah, hello, good morning. Uh, this is Ana Deluco from, an organization called Sure We Can here in New York. Um, I am part of the group working group on to end homelessness. And one of the things that I, I did not read yet the report, but um, I would like to know a little more how the situation of homelessness is in Indonesia And if they are considered part of this extreme poverty, or if there is any way to involve that situation in the growth. Thank you. Yeah,
3: Yeah, thank you very much for the question. I think, certainly, when you are uh, defining the poverty rate in Indonesia, of course, the main indicator will be the amount of money spent for their uh, basic uh, needs. But uh, another part of the definition of the poor families would be the housing facilities. So of course, when you are talking about the poor people, uh, some of them do not really have houses. But it doesn't mean that they are uh, really homeless. Of course, the homeless is there. I mean, I don't have the statistics with me, but the homeless is there, especially on urban area. But when it comes to the rural areas, what I understand maybe because of the culture, because of the tradition, and also don't forget because of the weather, because we don't have extreme uh, winter like what you have here in the US. So basically, uh, I mean, uh, from different perspective, people do not see uh, the homeless in the rural area as a big issue because they usually can live everywhere as long as they have the shades or any, anything that cover uh, as a roof. But in the urban area yes it is, uh, it is, uh, it is there but uh, this is again my experience if I look the homeless like here in the Manhattan or uh, in some cities in Australia. in Indonesia the homeless they are not really you know uh, sleep or stay in the let's say pedestrian, in the main uh, shopping area but they are more uh, somewhere in the if i call it under the bridge or on the slum area maybe uh, in indonesia rather than talking about homeless the bigger issue would be the slum area we don't have zero slum area yet i mean still uh, a lot of slum area in big cities in indonesia but as i mentioned that's the issue in urban area, but in rural area, because we are not we don't have the so called the slum area, so we just look at the 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 quality of the housing facility itself.
1: Uh, thank you very much for the presentations. I'm um, Mese from Malawi. Yes, I, I just wanted to learn more, I think. I, I don't know whether I missed it, but I just wanted to learn more how you are organizing women to really get out of poverty, those ones in the rural areas. Are they in groups so that they can be able to access finance? and maybe be able to do some businesses, small-scale businesses. Yes, thank you very much.
3: Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what have, has happened in Indonesia, in which kind of copying the Gramin Bank type in uh, Bangladesh. Now we are uh, promoting more the so-called uh, women's group, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, I mean, women's group small financing base. So small and micro financing base. So uh, the institution, the financial institution, financial institution, gave the financing to a group of women, and they do it as a kind of revolving fund. And if one of the members of the group uh, is still on loan, then uh, the others will do the watching to make sure that this lady will, you know, do the repayment at the uh, at the regular uh, at the regular rates meaning that uh, there is a kind of uh, social uh, enforcement to make sure that uh, the group uh, can really repay the loan and then after they got the repayment the loan can be then uh, uh, extended to to the other group or extended among the members in the group so I think the the method has been very effective and now more and more entrepreneurs actually coming from women from this group from the from the mothers actually because most of the members it's not just women but women who are mothers so they have some kind of responsibility uh, to uh, to the society and you are right i think it's better to uh, distribute the some uh, microfinancing to the women's group rather than the men's. Because in Indonesia, unfortunately, when you are talking about the consumption of men, they are still consume the cigarettes at the top. So it means that they spend too much money for cigarettes rather than for education or rather than for their uh, small and medium enterprise.
2: Okay thank you so much in the interest of time we are going to let off the
3: honorable <clears throat> minister thank yeah. you so much for the presentation okay, thank, you thank you so much for sharing thank you thank Okay much you much.
2: <clears throat> so we are going to continue with the presentations we have five we have five presenters we have professor Jemano Mwambu from Kenya I'll give him 5 minutes okay. You'll be followed by Mama Kita, five minutes. Madame Lamont, five minutes. And then lastly, Mary Otterson, also five minutes. So
5: we're running out of
2: time. I won't come back to call you just five minutes. I bang the table. party you stop there and continue? And then we shall open up the session for discussions. So, Jemana, it's your turn. So th-
6: th- thank you very much, uh, Chair. Uh, I-, I would like to... Um, clarify our, the, the concept in the report, the concept of growth uh, from below and growth uh, from above. Actually, in, uh, in this report, we identify uh, the, the position of uh, people in the income distribution based on location, location where, where they work and where they live. So the people in the bottom, at the bottom of the income distribution, these are people in the, in the informal sector, actually in urban areas and also in rural areas, and in small-scale agriculture. So people live and work in those two areas, the informal sector and the small-scale agriculture in Africa, they make up about 80 to 90% of the population. So actually, most of the poor people are to be found there. And that's why we, in the report, we think that we should focus on growth in those, in those areas, small-scale agriculture and the informal sector. Um, Also, in terms of location, as has been pointed out from the question from the floor, there are are people who are missing from the poverty statistics, actually they are not there because there's no data on them. And uh, these are people um, who have no homes, especially in rural areas and in slums, so actually you don't enumerate them. So those are missing, and those are again among the very poorest. So again, again we want to focus on how we can improve their uh, their, their, their condition. Now in terms of um, the, the growth from above, again in terms of location, again, these are people in the former sector, in private sector or, or the public, public sector and um, uh, these, are, these, are, these are small sec- section of the, of the a small proportion of the population in Africa were in those in the, in the former sector. Actually, I, agree, I agree less than uh, 10 than percent, but um, this sector, that former sector, commercial agriculture, uh, large scale uh, manufacturing industries, Okay, those those sectors are very important for job generation and also for the overall growth of the economy. So so, um, those sectors should not be neglected, but mechanisms for sharing growth initiated from those sectors, those mechanisms should be explicitly uh, recognized and encouraged. And um, this is why uh, Andrew shepard uh, uh, concluded that uh, the report uh, has implications for public, public sector spending. We are trying to find the money to provide, um, uh, to provide incentives and also investments that will improve productivity in the informal sector and in small scale. Uh, uh, activities And my last point is to point out that uh, in the 50s and the 60s, the general eco- economic idea of development was that if people move from rural areas to the urban sector, they actually become better off. We used to call that structural transformation in a positive way. But uh, the, actually, the experience in Africa shows that when people move from rural areas to the, the urban areas, they join the others in the informal sector, where productivity <coughs> is low. So tr- structural transformation is taking place, but in development is not taking place. Actually, that's something to, to think about in terms of uh, ideas about in development. So I... Uh, um, Maybe actually if I can take one more minute to talk about the empowerment of women. This is a tricky issue because um, uh, so women, as we saw show, we show in, 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 in Indonesia, they, they work a lot at the home. And what do they do? They care for children, they maintain the home, they care for their own But they don't participate in the, in the formal labor market. Now, the question is, if they go out in the same numbers as, 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 as men, okay, we will provide this essential service. Now, we can say that, say, for the child care, other women will come and be employed, but these other women also have their own children who also need to be cared for. So this, this, this uh, change of making women participate in the labor market as they should, cannot be done without a change where where what women do at home is recognized as a public good. And that is actually financed by public money to provide, especially for child care, and to also provide mechanisms for controlling fertility. Otherwise, if we simply say, okay, they now also move to to the labor market, then, okay, the children will be neglected. And then we create another problem for the future. So even many now, okay, should learn how to take care of children so that uh, that abandon is equally shared. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Professor. <clears throat> Mama Keta. Thank you, Chair. So what I would like to talk about here is the specific case of uh, oil uh, I mean, natural resource-rich countries, I work in Central Africa, and uh, many of these countries are very rich in terms of natural resources, especially you have a group of oil exporters in those countries. And uh, why is it interesting to talk about those countries? Because I think this issue of growth from above and growth from below is, has some peculiarity in that region. Because of the dependency in oil, um, most of the uh, export revenue and public revenue also come, is derived from oil. That make the public um, public sector or auto, I mean decision makers to import almost everything. Local production is very low. And for that reason, the cost of living, living is very high. And this make, uh, when it's high, it's high for the poorest, it's high for, for, for everybody. So the p- problem of poverty is, um, is a big issue for those uh, for those uh, countries also for the same reason for, for this because of the same growth um, model these countries are very vulnerable to external shocks because they depend on the rent derived from oil when the price and the demand for this oil goes down then these countries ex- experience some e- uh, macroeconomic shocks and uh, when the government is not getting uh, much public revenue, cannot invest very well, the growth goes down, and when it does not invest, again, there is impact on the, on the poor people, impact on, uh, and also on, the, you have also long-term consequences because when you stop investing in education, for instance, then you feel it in terms of the cap, uh, cap, human capital uh, building. In 2014, there was a big oil shock that, they, that hit those uh, countries, and because of they all went in recession, they all stopped investing and they are put under a fiscal consolid- consolidation program by the IMF. This also comes with a lot of restrictions and conditionalities, which are felt the first uh, victim of those are poor people. Another feature of that model also is because of the very um, the nature of the economy, more <coughs> relying on one sector, and there is no not much uh, linkages between the oil sector and the other sectors, so this makes it that there is no many opportunities for people, for poor people actually to to get from. To to get to use for growth from below, the economic base is very small. Most of the GDP is created by the oil sector, and then. Um, the role of the state in these countries is very important to bring, to provide opportunities for uh, for growth uh, from below, I think, and um, in that, uh, and when you take the indicator, performance indicators, public sector management indicators are very low, you have probably issue of transparency. Uh, you also have low productivity and competitiveness in the other sector that are not the, the, the oil sector. All this make... Um, opportunity for the other very low because you don't have the the private sector both internal and foreign private sector who want to come and invest in the country and create uh, more business and more opportunities. So that is a big issue and it's bring a lot on the table of the state it is to the state to create those opportunities and two things that I would like to add to this is that I in my um, in my view there is a new generation of people, who are not the non-skilled people that we know, That when we we usually talk about the growth from below. You have a very new generation of start work, working in the digital economy actually. They produce uh, applications, but they are not getting much or any help from the government. The, the cost, the access, the <clears throat> availability of internet is very complicated to them, and they, and they are not getting help, they are not getting financial support. The ecosystem for digital transformation is very poor for them from, to, to, to to learn from each other. These people are educated, I mean, in general, high education even. But they are doing this small invest, investment <coughs> for themselves. So I will categorize them in the group from below. I think that the impact of what they do, what they can do, is very, very important. Some of them, one of them in Cameroon, for instance, has invented an application for, I mean, he, he called it cardiopath, It can help to diagnose health, all sorts of health issues. So I think this is, it has great potential for, I mean, improving social development in those countries, but they are not getting the support. And I think that there really is something that needs to be done from the government. And last thing that I would like to mention, Chair, if you allow, is the new common market in Africa. Some of you have heard, may have heard about the African Continental free trade area. This is a huge market that Africa has set up, actually. It's made up of 1.2 billion people. So it has widened the market that is accessible to every country. Even if you are a very tiny country, such as Seychelles, with 90,000 people, you have access to, to this big market. So it's opportunities. And why is it important, interesting for this discussion today, because um, women who are part of the most vulnerable are um, one of the main actors in terms of cross-border trade. So again, as a role of the government, it will be very important to remove all the, some of the non-trade barriers. I think uh, Andrew was mentioning all sorts of issues that people face when you are trading, for instance, you have this uh, custom administrative hassles, you have security, you have police, you have all sorts of barrier that, uh, I mean, complicates your your transaction. So it is the role of the state to remove some of these things to create more opportunities for all this group of population. Let me stop here for now.
7: Thank you.
2: Marie, five minutes.
8: Thank you very much. Uh, And I will speak on behalf of Swedish Development Corporation and uh, the organization that I represent is SIDA. First of all, I would like to say that, uh, and I will also give a few comments about the report that we have just received. I haven't read the entire report myself, but I have read the, the briefing notes so far. And I will also give you some comments about on how we have organized our work in Sweden. Uh, And it could be good for you to know also that we have bilateral support as of right now in 35 different countries, but we also work at the global and regional level. Uh, And since a couple of years ago, we also have, it's it's no longer actually a new multi-dimensional poverty analysis, but it comprises of four different dimensions. And when I thought that I should give some comments on the report as well as reflecting on what SIDA was doing. I was a little bit concerned about the time constraint, but then I realized that a lot of the things that are actually in the report, um, they fully aligned with our approach uh, at CEDA. so therefore my task suddenly got a little bit easier. Uh, but I would like to say that we very much appreciate and we very much support also the work uh, that gives prominence to an economic growth as a way, as a way to reduce poverty, uh, rather than to see it as an objective in its own right. So therefore, we also very much appreciate the approach in emphasizing growth from below. That is also how we address poverty at SIDA, because it also recognizes the role of people living in poverty as the true and and the proper economic actors with determination and dignity. And we find that also as very important. When it comes to Swedish development cooperation, we always take the poor people's perspective as a starting point of point of everything that we do in every single contribution. So that is at all times uh, uh, really the starting point of our work. And therefore, of course, economic development is no exception to that as well. For us, it is very important to recognize women and men at all income levels as the economic actors. They contribute to the economy through their work, and they also benefit From the fruits of economic development through income, through profits, through own production or redistribution. Uh, And to ensure that all people, especially the ones living in poverty, can take part in an economic development on equal footing is at all times also at the center of SIDA's approach to an uh, inclusive economic development. We have heard also from previous speakers to talk about uh, the important role of women and gender, uh, and uh, <laughs> I saw there was three minutes left here, two minutes left maybe, okay. Uh, no, but what I want to say that to empower women is really important, and because that is also uh, highlighted in the report as a way of uh, moving and, and highlighting growth from below, and I was just like to highlight the, the importance of that, and also what I think is good from the report is If you work from growth from below, you will also find ways of supporting migration, which is extremely important. But I would also like to say that when I say that we address all people, I also mean women, because in many, many countries, they are still facing undue difficulties when exercising their rights as economic actors. When coming from SIDA and when we work on economic development, we are focusing on removing barriers and to strengthen capabilities and also to enable people to exercise their rights as economic actors to fully participate in and to contribute to and also to benefit from an economic development without limiting the next generation's possibilities for the same. So the type of analytical work that we have seen today is really important. It will help us as a development agency to sharpen our focus on economic development that can truly matter for people living in poverty. And I would also like to say that something that we have asked ourselves now is that, and one challenge that we see, is for how should we promote pro-poor development in times where we see that it's a largest structural transformation which has also been addressed by previous speakers, technological change, globalization, environmental constraints, that by large is beyond the control of the economic agents themselves. Uh, And another point is also that that we are thinking of right now is how can we get better at an integrating environmental consideration in the analysis uh, upfront both when it comes to adopting uh, the ongoing climate change but also to ensure the growth processes that should be both inclusive but also environmentally sustainable. And my very last point is that Even though we address um, growth um, from below and we try to reach out to the poorest and the most vulnerable, we have acknowledged that we need to do more at CEDA to make sure that no one is left behind. So as of this year, we have a special emphasis on the poorest and the most vulnerable because we see that uh, otherwise uh, we will not achieve our part of the agenda. Uh, okay, I think that I ran out of time, so we stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> Last but not least. Alexandria,
7: five minutes. All right, very good. Thank you very much. Um, I'm very pleased to be here to represent uh, Global Affairs Canada and um, our our approach to economic growth uh, programming for development. Um, uh, very pleased to be able to participate in the discussion with this, my esteemed colleagues here. Um, we were very very interested to hear the results of the report because uh, you know the the work and the emphasis on sustained escape from poverty. Um, and uh, initiatives that can promote growth from below are very important mm-hmm. uh, to Canada and of great interest to us. Um, you know, The economic empowerment of women and the poorest are, are also cross-cutting themes for our, for our policy. Uh, the, the team that I work with has been responsible for elaborating one of the six action areas, the, the one dealing with economic growth programming under Canada's feminist international assistance policy. And so we're we have been working on, on uh, providing guidance that will can be used by both uh, our development officers in choosing projects, but also on our implementing partners looking to what Canada seeks to fund. So so the work that uh, of the report and the analysis will you know already has been very useful. The work that uh, Chronic Poverty uh, Action Network is doing, and, and this will be further grist for the mill. Um, We are aiming to be a donor that does a better job of supporting growth from below. Um, uh, This is something that Canada recognizes both at home and abroad. uh, And it is very important to understand, better understand what initiatives work best in this area. Uh, In our development programming across the board and really the emphasis of the international assistance policy really is to address inequality by better including the poorest and most vulnerable. To further um, uh, promote women's empowerment across the board. And we're also looking very much to incorporate uh, greater innovation and effectiveness in our, in our development assistance, including by increasing the, the number of mechanisms that we use. Um, particularly, we're, we're, we bring forward some new innovative finance tools that I think will be applicable in this area. We're also very cognizant that a lot of the programming uh, development programming will be in fragile and conflict-affected environments. And so we're taking, uh, we're doing some work in that area as well and in trying to figure out what can we advise, what can we advise on on how best to program for economic development in in that type of environment. Um, in, In developing and elaborating on the Growth That Works for Everyone action area, um, you know, thanks for the existing work of, of uh, CPAN, we were able to rely on a better understanding of the dynamics of poverty, and in, in particular the importance of resilience to poverty reduction given the frequency with which p- people escape poverty but then uh, can fall back into it due to the absence of tools to deal with risks. So um, and we sort of fully took on board that what Andrew described, the need to uh, tackle, tackle extreme poverty stop impoverishment and also to sustain those escapes from poverty. So our, we came up with kind of three paths to action under a theory of change for our our growth policy. And the first one is, is that uh, overcoming or bringing down barriers to women's economic empowerment, uh, you know, particularly by, you know, upholding or advancing legal and policy and regulatory reforms. uh, You know, so that to, sort to help them sort of make better use or, or Greater, greater attain their <coughs> economic rights, and also su- we're looking to support their leadership in in businesses and communities and institutions, and also looking to address the question of unpaid work and the disproportionate burden burden of care that they that they uh, that they face. The second path to action under the theory of change is to build more inclusive and sustainable economies. This is maybe more the kind of classic economic growth programming. Um, helping individuals and enterprises to become more competitive, innovative and green. Uh, looking to increase employment opportunities and increase access to improve access to markets. Um, and, and generally trying to ensure that markets work better for the poorest and the most marginalized. Um, this would include supporting entrepreneurship, investments in infrastructure and in human capital, uh, in technical and vocational uh, training, in rural development and access to credit. And then the third path to action under the theory of change is strengthening economic resilience. And this is really the piece rooted in the the work of ODI and CPAN, And I think the one that we're going to expect to have to kind of uh, educate our our officers on the most. You know, and and that's where we are, uh, you know, seeking to prevent people from slipping back into poverty and helping those who are in poverty traps to acquire enough financial stability to invest in themselves and their businesses. Uh, We'll be looking to help the poorest and most vulnerable meet their basic needs through social protection programs, such as the ones uh, that the Indonesian Minister described so well. Uh, Also looking to address financial inclusion and managing financial risks through better access to insurance, capital, etc., and technologies and services. so that, so with all of that, the, we also found that the, the the work of the report really very closely aligns with the direction we want to go. Um, we'll be examining it closely, I think, as we are going to be drilling down one more level and providing more specific guidance on each of these three uh, paths to action. And um, and probably a lot of that work will be reflected in those in that further guidance that we that we're providing that we're working on at the moment. So thank you very much.
2: So thank you so much, our panelists. We've had it, we've had it, uh, comments from uh, developing countries. We've had development partners. Before I open the session, I'm the chairperson. I'm going to give myself opportunity to say two things. One, to thank the um, the ODI for this very interesting research, and to say that um, as um, somebody coming from a developing country, I agree that. Um, The best approach is to have both growth from above and growth from below, but we have to put this into context, for example, in terms of choice of focus. In my country, I'm coming from Uganda. Currently, our biggest problem is we have um, a young population. More than 50% of the population are youth, and we have a very fast population growth rate. So in this case, our key issue right now is unemployment. We have a lot of youth who who have no work to do, And what we are looking at in terms of a breakthrough, we're not not saying that they should really focus on agriculture because we have issues of land fragmentation if we have so many people on the land. So we are looking at ICT, how we can use the the information, communication, and technology as a sector in terms of fostering growth. Because it can work as a two-way thing. You can first of all reduce, um, you can have efficiency gains in terms of the way the public operates if you use a lot of ICT. But we also see this as a sector which can create employment for the youth. Most of them are really digital-minded and so on. So we're looking at how we can export that sector in terms of employing most of these youth in that sector. But also another thing we've done in terms of uh, how do we leave nobody behind, we've made it legal. Now, for us, we have a law whereby everything we do in government has to ensure that we have a beat which is addressing issues of inequality. So every, every sector, if you want a budget, you have to show on an annual basis that you're addressing issues of inequality in terms of you're looking at gender, you're looking at uh, geographical inequalities, you're looking at issues of disability, you know, so you must prove that actually you know these vulnerable people exist in your sector, and the thing is what are you doing for them, and you must show a budget. So we think that um, if we have that, whereby every sector does something for the very poor, also look at issues of ICT. I think we can really have a breakthrough in terms of how do we ensure everybody's on board and everybody moves ahead. So I'm going to open up the session. You say your name, and you, you, you ask if you have a comment. You, you tell us whom you're, you're addressing it to, excluding me. Because I'm, I'm just like all of you, are just giving a comment. So it's the other five guys. Well, if you have a comment, please. The floor is open. We have 15 minutes. <coughs>
3: Hi, my name is Judy Schachter, and I'm with the League of Women Voters of the United States. And I have a quick question for Ms. Lamont. Um, Is Canada doing anything different or specific for the native um, Canadians? The biggest problem there, there's a lot of poverty, as well as girls being missing and that type of thing. And I was wondering if there's any specific programs that you're dealing with for them. Okay, I saw a hand.
5: Good morning, thank you uh, and congratulations to Andrew for the report and also for bringing together a great panel. Um, I think that uh, in terms of the investments required and how investment is directed, I'm interested in the politics. Uh, What we know uh, under the MDGs is that a lot of funding went into getting people who were just below the line to just above the line because that was the most efficient use of aid. You got the biggest bang for your buck. In terms of growth from below uh, as opposed to growth from above, my guess is that uh, the unit cost of getting somebody uh, above the poverty line through growth from below is going to be higher. Uh, than uh, the sort of investments that uh, people want to make which are in uh, big, uh, less, as it were, bespoke investments, uh, growth from above. So how do you get over the political challenges involved in that in saying that the Leave No One Behind agenda, uh, because it's getting to the more difficult-to-reach poor, uh, is going to require disproportionately costly interventions.
4: Yeah. Um, I was impressed but happy when Professor Germano said that there are those who are not even in the statistics which Mm -hmm. I am most concerned of And so, again, of that leave no one behind agenda. How can we reach and how can we include those who are not even in the statistics? So they are not just below poverty, they -hmm. they are not Mm -hmm. (laughs) in those. So this is one of the things that I am concerned. And the other thing, um, the Commission for Socioeconomic Development, which usually have the sessions of February uh, we in the civil society have the impression that it's dying, dying, every year is poorer and poorer as commission, and in fact it's the place where we should tackle all these things at the UN level. So I will just want any comment of why is it that government seems not interested in those sessions, and for next year precisely it's about homelessness. So we want the governments to be really interested in participating.
2: Um, Thank you for your presentations. My name is Alanya. I'm from BCCIC. I'm a youth delegate from Canada. Um, I was wondering, I know it was touched on that uh, growth from below can support migrants, and I was wondering if that could be elaborated on, especially in relation to forced climate migration. Do you want
0: me to go first one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think um, the question that was for me was from Tony, um, uh, and the issue about the unit cost being higher and what is the politics of this. Um, I think some of the measures are. Not necessarily expensive, is the first thing. I mean, if you're talking about getting rid of... I mean, in terms of money, they're not expensive. Um, They may be expensive in terms of political capital, if you like. So in terms of getting rid of regulations uh, which create barriers, that's something which can be done, generally speaking, without spending a lot of money on it. Um, But... uh, it can be very difficult to do politically because it may challenge ideologies. I give you an example: um, a government may be very keen to promote the image of its capital city uh, and to have a very clean, um, to have very clean streets and uh, neatly organised markets and so on. That may not suit people who are struggling to get out of poverty in in that urban centre. Um, but the government may be quite strongly invested in in those objectives. So it can be politically quite challenging, um, but not necessarily so expensive. Um, I think if you look, I mean, every government has, at least of the governments that we've been interacting with, they all have kind of strong points and weak points. So for example, recently we've been working in Rwanda. I mentioned the Rwanda health insurance Scheme, which is quite remarkable. So, we go to Rwanda, we do our life history research. We do not find that ill health is the major cause of impoverishment in Rwanda, that it is almost everywhere else that we have worked. And it's so that's a remarkable kind of eureka moment in doing research. The health insurance scheme has really contributed something. But then, if you go and you know, they've invested hugely in uh, you know, in terms of public expenditure. Rwanda has the highest level of public expenditure in, in health, public health, of any of the comparator countries that we've looked at, whether in the region or more broadly at its income level. And it subsidizes um, the poorest people in Rwanda to have access to the health insurance scheme, and it's done a lot of work to improve quality and have a referral system. So you know, really good story. But then you move to education in Rwanda, and you don't find a similar good story. So it may be that uh, you know, in many countries, and I think Indonesia is a very good example of this, certain measures have been advanced. The political impetus to advance those measures has been found. The political impetus to construct, you have to construct political impetus. You have to form alliances. You have to, you have to build it over a period of time, and, and sometimes it's very opportunistic. You get a new government, and, so on, so I think the politics can come, but it's going to be incremental in most cases, and it's going to be, you know, with a more of a focus on one side of the picture than another side of the picture, and and yeah, some of the some of it will be challenging politically. I think there's no doubt about that, and I think the kind of situations that Mama Keta was describing represent some of the most challenging um, situations uh, that that uh, will have to be dealt with. Um, in terms of getting people who are at the bottom of the distribution out of poverty, and the unit cost of that, it can be it can be very high, uh, and particularly if you go in with an integrated intervention, BRAC style, um, you know, where you're providing a lot of different supports at different times, and you're tracking people's progress, and you're providing mentoring over a, a period of you know three years or five years or whatever. And there's a lot of that kind of graduation type of approach, and we know that it's expensive. I mean, the cost does vary from one country to another, but it, it, we know it's expensive by and large. But if you have existing schemes in government or uh, outside government, and you can combine those existing schemes and target them at the right people, if you like, bring them to the right people, then perhaps you can achieve the same sort of objectives uh, at lower cost. I mean, it's still not going to be cheap. I don't think we should deny it. It's not going to be cheap, but uh, it it can be done perhaps a little bit more easily. I'll leave my colleagues to track the other ones.
6: Yeah, in terms of um, statistics, which means uh, having statistics that count everyone, not just some people. So right now, especially in Africa, the household surveys which are conducted uh, every, sometimes actually say in Kenya every 10 years, they are based on households, regular homes, and uh, they are not conducted in uh, say under bridges or in the streets and so on. I think there's a need to invest in uh, data collection methods, approaches that will capture everyone. I think that's the only thing I can, uh, I can say there. Uh, now, on the issue of unity costs. So a, 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 practical, a practical example of uh, reducing poverty from uh, above, is where we established a, say, a factory, like a shoe factory and then uh, poor people come to work there, uh, they rise above the poverty line. The the, the unit cost there can be, let's say, uh, say $5 per person employed. But you can also think of a a similar situation where um, in terms of the growth now from below, rather than from above, like the one for the factory, you provide the farmer with the uh, better seeds or a fertilizer and then uh, the poor people around there also come to work for a wage actually in that, in, that, in that case the unit cost of providing wage employment by giving farmers better seeds or fertilizer would actually be lower it would actually be lower and in the other one for the factory uh, you have also to ask, uh, who actually come to work there? Okay, could be people from the siams But even those people from the siams may, may live very far from the factory. So you, uh, actually for them to benefit, you need for them to have transportation to go to the places where the jobs are being created. So actually the unit cost there, when you look at the total unit cost, could, uh, could actually be higher. In, uh, in the above above in growth, uh, in the growth from in the growth from above scenario. Okay. Uh, thank you very much.
1: Uh, thank you. So what I would like also to speak to is a little bit of this statistic issue. Just to say that there are some initiative now in Africa whereby countries now try to set up some digital IDs, <laughs> digital ID, so that to be able to count everybody to have um vital statistics on, um, on everybody, so that will help really to have um, a clearer idea of categories of people and uh, living conditions. Now, at, uh, when it comes to the cost of um, the SDGs and, uh, and the poor rest, what I would like to say is that some people have led the exercise of costing the, the SDGs. And that is done by the IMF, for instance, they have done it by category of the level of income of the countries. They say, for instance, that when you are um, low income countries, it will take you from now to 2030, around 30% of your GDP that you need, that will cost. But the costing that they do is they limit it to a few sectors, education, health, and infrastructure. In infrastructure, you have road, energy, and I think ICT. So this is how it is, uh, it is costed, but they don't fragment it between the, the poorest and the, 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 the little bit more wealthy. And the last thing that I would like to emphasize on is really the, 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 the role of the state. By no means, whether grow from below or from above, the role of the state is really critical. It's the state that does the major investment that helps the, 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 the people growing from, from below even. Education is critical infrastructure is critical to take your whatever you are to trade or whatever service you want to provide from one place to another place. the cost of energy is very important. those big investment comes from the, from the, the state. So I think the role of the state is very important and also to, in, to be able to increase opportunities again, if um, there, are a lot, there are needs for a lot of reforms in many African countries because competitiveness is low. Productivity is low, regulatory framework and legal framework is low. Those are uh, preventing the country from receiving FDIs which also are a good opportunity to create job growth that will touch even the, the poorest people. So I think that working on some physical investment but also on reforms is really critical from many states to improve the condition of both groups that you are talking about, growth from below and those that <clears throat> would like to grow from 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 above with the creation of those manufacturing um, uh, sectors.
8: Thank you. Uh, I think that the question that was asked of leave no one behind and how to reach out to those are extremely important. And that is also why I said that we have changed our approach to try to see, because we have identified that we need to do more. But it is a headache uh, on how to address the making sure that we can actually reach the poorest and the most vulnerable. I was here last week as well, and I heard quite a lot of speeches, both from indigenous, representing indigenous people, the youth, the civil society, with very strong speeches that, that they, with the same message that we are not included, you don't talk to us, you talk about us, and so on. So, I mean, I don't have the solution to that on exactly how to do it, but I think that what we have heard also today, digitalization is one way of... Uh, making it easier, which is also one of our key priorities also in the future, but I also think that, uh, and I forgot to mention that uh, in my introduction, that to have a report like we have now, uh, that we now have from ODI is a very important step for us as a development partner because it means that we can uh, see how you have addressed different problems, we can team up with you, we can team up with other donors. We can team up with uh, whoever we are working in a specific country. And then, of course, we need to address the state there. We need to address civil society there. So, to me, very much, it's also very much about having a holistic approach and also to work in partnership because we have a problem right now. The Agenda 2030 is off track and we need to get back on track. And then we need to work both smarter and faster. And we can't do that if we don't use uh, and help out. And I think. In order to do that, it's really a partnership uh, that we need.
7: Okay, I can, I'll can. i try to address a couple of questions. And of course, the first one, thank you for your question about uh, Indigenous communities in Canada. Yes. I'm, I'm coming from a development perspective, so more addressing what Canada's development assistance is, is oh. aiming at abroad. But it actually does include... Uh, you know, encouragement and, and interest in helping Indigenous communities abroad. Domestically, I'm, I'm not an expert on the field, but I mean, I can certainly say that the, you know, the state of, of Indigenous communities in Canada is of concern to all Canadians. And um, uh, just recently, the report came out on uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women. <laughs> Uh, with a number of of recommendations, and the government is now looking at those and and uh, considering, you know, how to move forward with implementation on that front. Uh, and then I, I was I was happy to actually address the question of uh, of migration. Um, again that's something I mean development I think approaches from a number of angles one is recognizing you know actually I think it's probably under recognized the degree to which economic growth in developing countries uh, or, or it's underemphasized to the degree to which it that can help probably help with the drivers of migration domestically not entirely but but that's an important aspect um, and then on the other side, I mean, it, uh, remittances, the remittances, the volume of remittances is five times the amount of official development assistance. And there's work in the G20 that I know we are very closely involved in uh, to try to reduce remittance costs um, you know, from Canada or whatever countries, uh, both in, in the sending country and in the receiving country. So, I mean, the remittances are larger. There's a lot more remittances than that. Um, But uh, there is effort to help uh, make the most of of what is being sent.
2: So, thank you, members. I think one question which was not answered the issue of governments not participating in some UN level talks. I think it all depends on what governments see as the benefits. What are the benefits of waiting for a meeting? Whether it's just a talk show or people see and benefit from it, I think this is the, the whole essence of whether governments participate or not. looks like I'm the only person from government here, so I'm talking for my government. We usually go for meetings or discussions where we think there's a benefit for us. If we think it's not worth it, we don't turn up. So I want to call upon uh, Professor Shebert here to wind up the, the discussion. Otherwise, thank you much, very much for being such a good audience this morning.
0: Yes, thank you very much indeed. I'd just like, before we close, I'd just like to thank uh, one or two people. It won't be long (laughs) and you'll be free to go. But thank you very much to to all the panelists um, and in his absence, the the minister as well, uh, and his team. Um, And thanks very much to our co-authors for the report. It was a a big job and two of them are here, Vidya Diwaka, who greeted you at the door, and Germano Mwabu. Uh, who's here on the panel and i'd also like to thank very much uh, stefania perna who's not here today but she's uh, organized the session today she organized the production of the report and she's also organized the online streaming of this of this session and uh, generally supports all our work so thank you to all of you and thank you very much margaret for chairing very ably Thank thank you